I'd like for you to turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Exodus. It's important to um, kind of catch up where we are. I know our time is limited, so you're going to have to listen fast. Okay? I, um, I want us to be sure and remember that there is a principle that um, helps us to understand the Old Testament. And that, that truth is, is that you get the principles of the Christian life in the New Testament illustrated in the Old Testament. So what is a principle that we live by in New Testament Christianity? You can have picture after picture of that in the Old Testament. The principles of the Christian life are pictured in illustrations in the Old Testament. And the book of Exodus is a tremendous illustration of the gospel of redemption and what is involved in the New Testament uh, idea of the redemption that was accomplished in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, He is the Lamb of the book of Exodus. The Lamb. When He's called the Lamb of God, that's not just a term somebody thought up of Him. It is what He is in light of the accomplished um, work of the Lamb in redemption in the Old Testament. Beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, I, I said that when you get to the, um, to the plagues, that a new thrust begins with regard to this book. The gauntlet has been thrown down, and there is this great conflict that begins between Almighty God and the Egyptians. But more than that, there is this um, tableau that is drawn out before us of the conflict between good and evil as far as the range of human vision goes, that is, as far as we can see the war, the conflict between good and evil, we can see that pictured in this uh, unfolding that goes on in this part of the book of Exodus. And what is happening here in the plagues, and there are ten of them, we talked about them last week, but what is happening in the plagues is not just that God is trying to break the will of Pharaoh. God is asserting His sovereignty and He is declaring that He is the true God because there are all kinds of gods and Egypt has all kinds of deities and every one of these deities are challenged in each one of these plagues and God is establishing the fact that He alone is God and He's the true God, the sovereign God the God Almighty. Now, I, I didn't get through last week. We got, we had, uh, we, we, uh, you know, we, we, let, we let out at 8 o'clock because you got through before I did. So <laughs> I quit. And uh, I know you're already through, but that's not going to be work. You know, okay, it's not going to work. Hold up the signs, that's okay. Then going to work. Now, I want to go back, I want to pick up on one plague that is so important that I didn't get to, and that's in the 10th chapter. Now just, just look at it, it's the 9th plague, it has to do with darkness in the land. There's a beautiful lesson here I want us to get before we go on. And really the plague begins in verse 21, the account of the plague. I just want to read verse 23. Then they did not see one another. Look at this, darkness came over the land, total darkness. 
You ever been in one of those um, caves? It was total darkness. You go down into Carlsbad Cavern or somewhere. Total darkness what it was like. I mean, the lights went out. No, no light for three days. Neither, they did not see one another, nor did anyone arise from his place for three days. They didn't even get up and move. Can you see that? But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now, um, you, you let your imagination go. The only light in the land was the light where God's people were. I love it. And it was total darkness over the rest of the land. Total darkness. Hear me now. Get this. Egypt had a darkness. It couldn't light up. And Israel had a light that Israel, that Egypt couldn't put out. Egypt had a darkness. They couldn't light up. And Israel had a light they couldn't put out. And I'm reminded of John 1. It's talking about Jesus. And he said, and the writer said, that he came into this world. He was in the beginning, but he became, you know, he came into the world. And he was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness. And the darkness couldn't. You have a New American Standard. It says comprehend it. But really, the best translation, and the darkness couldn't do anything about it, couldn't put it out. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Now, if there is, if there is light in this darkness, in this world, it'll be the light that shines from the people of God. I, um, one of the most interesting places you'll visit if you ever make it over to the Holy Land to the Bible lands, is they take you out to this place where there's a, there, there are little hills. One of them is a hill where the Sermon on the Mount was uh, taught. And they take you out there. It's the most impressive place I've ever seen, really, my, for, my, for myself. In fact, uh, when I happened to, had the privilege of going over there, I let everybody go to the bus, and I went back out there just to sit on that mountain for a little bit, little hill. And there's a hill just beyond that. It's, it's, it, it, the guide says it was the place referred to when Jesus said that a life that's set on a hill you can't put out. Now a believer, the Christian, is that light in the world that um, can't be ext extinguished. Well, um, that's another sermon. Okay, that's last Sunday's sermon. See? If you ought to let me go on and get it done last Sunday, we wouldn't have had to go back. Now, I want to talk tonight about the Sovereign Lord slash Sacrificial Lamb. The Sovereign Lord, the Sacrificial Lamb. And I want to look at, verse, at chapter 11, and we'll just take a quick look at this. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I'll bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that... He will let you go from here. When He lets you go, He will surely drive you out from here completely. Now, He says this. He said, um, I'm going to bring one more plague, and when that plague is over, He won't just let you go. He'll run you out. I mean, He'll be so glad to get rid of you. He'll thrust you out. 
He'll be so glad to get rid of those people for whom God troubled his land and himself because God's will will be accomplished. God's will will be accomplished. Because there's going to be a, a king that's vi- going to visit Egypt on this night that is mightier than the king of Egypt. Now Pharaoh uh, was the king, of course, the lord of, of, the, of the people. Well, he was more than a king, he was a god. They worshipped him. And they built these edifices to him. And they built these statues to him. He was king of Egypt. And he was god of Egypt. The only problem is, is that there's a God greater than him. I mean, there's a king of kings is coming to Egypt. The Lord of lords is coming to Egypt. And the God of all gods has made his presence known in Egypt. And this last time is going to be such a way, they're going to be glad to get rid of him. When the king of kings comes, the little kings um, have a problem <laughs> with it. Now look at verses 2 and 3. We're talking about the sovereign Lord of Egypt. That's the whole whole plan that's being established, that's being asserted in in the plagues. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Now, is that, is that, is that amazing or what? I mean, does that um, kind of, uh, you know, astound you? And here are these people that have lived as slaves in this land for all these years. They are these ragtags and nobodies that everybody whipped around and abused. And now these people have found favor in the sight of the Egyptians, even the servants of Pharaoh. And they, and they went to them and they said, give us your silver and your gold and your jewels and your money. And they gave it to them. And not only were they esteemed in the eyes of the people, But Moses, this man who was troubling Egypt, was esteemed. He became Egypt's national hero. I don't know what that says to you, but it says to me that when you're on God's side, you're invincible. I mean, yeah. Um, Let me say something uh, just kind of parenthetically here to the young people that are present. I mean, younger than, than I am at least. I mean, who isn't? (laughs) younger than I am. Um, I think it's important to say this, that that the people of God may not be the most popular people, but they can be the most respected. Now, you may not be, as a young person, you may not be, you know, Mr., uh, Mr. Campus or Mrs. Queen of Campus. Let me tell you something. You live for God and you'll be respected on the campus. The amazing thing is, is that God's people, when they're God's people, may not be liked by everybody, but are respected by everybody. That's pretty impressive. 
And I'm turned over one time to the book of Acts, and I'm reading in there about this church that just exploded on this world, this known world. It was growing by the thousands. And the scripture says that they were meeting and they were reading a Bible and were having fellowship with one another and they were praising God. And then this most unusual sentence, it says, and they found favor with all the people. And they found favor with all the people. Now whatever else that meant, it means this, that these people of God were such people that they had to be respected by the people around them. God's people are people respected. And the book of Proverbs says that a man's ways that are pleasing to God, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he'll make his enemies be at peace with him. That's God's promise, young people. You may not be popular, but you'll be respected, and that's more important. Now, how is it that, that um, these people were able to go and say to their, um, the Egyptians, we want your money, and they got their money? I mean, that is absolutely amazing to me. Could you give us some jewelry and some gold? We're fixing to leave, your, we're fixing to, you know, leave town, and we'd like some jewelry and gold, and maybe your microwave and a couple of lounge chairs. You know, we may need it out here. And they just gave it to them. Well, it was a fulfillment of the promise of God. If you, have a, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 15. Now you need to remember that the 15th chapter of Genesis was a promise, was, is, was written, was, uh, the record of this took place hundreds of years before Exodus. Literally hundreds of years before the Exodus. The 15th chapter of the book of Genesis and verse 14, and this is God speaking, he says, I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Now the, the problem with this is, and the uniqueness of this is, that this was a promise made hundreds of years before it happened. And God was saying, He's, he's prophesying, he's, he's indicating that this nation will one day go into captivity, but they're not going to die in captivity. In fact, God makes them a promise that when they come out of captivity, they're going to be better off financially than when they went in to captivity. Now it didn't look like that for a long time. And sometimes it looks like that God may, will not uh, make true His promises. You just keep on living and trusting God and he'll, he'll, he'll make His promises true. That's the sovereignty of God. Now, what is the extent of that sovereignty? I want to look at verses 4 through 7 of uh, this chapter and let's look at it together. Chapter 11. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight... You see the Ten Commandments? That's yeah, getting ready, you know, the Ten Commandments. The violins start playing. About midnight, I'm going out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is being behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. He's the Lord of every creation, everything in creation. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, such as never shall be again. 
But against, now take a pencil and underline this. This is the, this is the statement where the, where the watershed occurs. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even bark. Whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, would you mark this down? I want to I turn to it. Well, I will turn to it. It's the book of Romans, chapter 9, verse 15. Let me just read you this, chapter 9, verse 15 of Romans. This is what it says. For he says to Moses, that God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I want to talk to you tonight about the extension the extent of the, of the sovereignty of God as it relates to justice and mercy. Now the question is, if he, makes, if he makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, how and on, on what basis is that distinction made? If he brings his hand of judgment down upon Egypt and he spares Israel... Why does he judge Egypt and spare Israel? On what basis is that distinction made? It's not on the basis of merit. Because Israel is as much a sinner as Egypt is. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that God doesn't spare Israel because Israel deserves to be spared. And Egypt deserves to be punished because, listen to me carefully, Egypt is as worthy to be Israel is as worthy to be judged by the wrath of God as Egypt is to be judged. So why would God make a distinction on the basis of, and on what basis is that distinction made? His his distinction is made on the basis of His mercy. Now listen to me very carefully. One day some men came to Jesus and they, they referred to a fact that some innocent people were standing out on the street corner and this, this building fell on them. You know, and they were innocent bystanders and they came to Jesus and, and they asked Him and said, now, now why is it that these innocent people suffered like that? And Jesus said, in essence, you're asking me the wrong question. You shouldn't be asking me, why do these innocent people suffer? You should be asking me, why you don't suffer? Now, there is a difference between the justice of God and the mercy of God. Now, God can either exercise or execute justice, or He can execute mercy. If he executes justice, every single person in this room tonight would come under the judgment of God because we're all guilty of sin. I hope, you know, some people will say, well, I, all I want is just, you know, to get what I deserve. I hope I never get what I deserve. I mean, if I get what I deserve, um, you'd just probably find a, just a kind of a fried, like a piece of fried bacon right here on this pulpit when it's you know, zapping, it'd just be a little 
puff of smoke go up and a bacon rind <laughs> left, left here. If I got what I deserved, I wouldn't last the next 15 seconds. I hope I never get what I deserve. And if God doesn't judge us all, it won't be because we have something to merit His worth, His, His love. There's no worth in us that would deserve that. Now, God may not execute mercy. He may execute justice, but He will next, never execute injustice. Watch me carefully. Listen to this. Whatever God does in justice, He does with righteous justice. And that means that everything He does is right. It's right straight down the line. It's not crooked. It's just. So if God does bring judgment, it will be just. It will not be unjust. There will not be injustice. So that God can either execute mercy or He can execute justice. And if He does not execute justice, He will execute mercy. Now in the case of Israel, He executed mercy. In the case of most of us tonight, He executes mercy and grace. There's not a one of us tonight that deserves anything but the judgment of God. Now, God said in, in, um, to Moses, and Paul recorded it, that God, because of His sovereignty, has the right to do either one. I love it. He has the right to do either one. He said, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, if you experience tonight justice in this world, don't you complain about it because God has the right to execute it. And if you experience mercy tonight, you don't, uh, you know, don't revel in that in the sense that you've deserved it because it's just because God has chosen to grant mercy to you. And I hope we can all say that, you know, God brings mercy in my life. The sovereignty of God. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is that the sovereignty of God is established in chapter 11 because He's going to describe for us the sacrificial lamb in chapter 12. Sovereign Lord is at the same time sacrificial lamb. Now, if you get a picture of the principle of of his uh, sacrifice, of his life, of his death. You get that pictured here in this sacrificial lamb. And there are six ways it's pictured. Let's just see how far we can go in chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Would you take a big red pencil? If you got a blue one, take a blue one. If you got a black one, take a black one. Just circle that, those two verses. This is what it says. What God is saying is, is that the institution of the Passover was the beginning of their national life. Their calendar began with that institution. The calendar began with the Passover and the Exodus. This will be the beginning of you. Let me tell you, when your life begins is when you experience 
personal relationship with the living Lord. That's when your life begins. And when did, when does our calendar, how is our calendar marked? It's, isn't it A.D. and B.C.? So that when you write a letter and you date that letter, you're dating that letter in the year of our Lord because our calendar began with Him. The sacrificial lamb is the beginning of one's identity as a people, as a nation. All right, second. Verse 3, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth month, tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household. A lamb for each household. And they singled out this lamb from the flock. And they separated it. Look at it says, what it says, Your lamb shall be unblemished, a male year old, and may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And they, 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 they divided it, they separated it out for four days. They took the lamb and they separated it unto death before it was slain. Before his death, Jesus was singled out to die. First Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and verses 19 and 20, it says that he was foreknown from the foundation of the world, the lamb slain. And what he's saying is, is that he was chosen and set apart for death before he was ever born. Singled out to die. So that Jesus didn't come and get in a trap and people turned on him and, t- and, and took him out and crucified him. He was slain before the foundation of the world. Before there was ever a need, there was a provision for that need. And before there was ever a sin, there was a Savior. All right, number three, verse five. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. It's unblemished, without a stain, without a spot. Nothing but a perfect sacrifice could satisfy the requirements of God who Himself is perfect. Now when you study the, um, the theology of Jesus, Christology, when you, have, when you study Christology, and we did this summer, one of the aspects of Christology is the... the uh, sinless life of Jesus. I mean, it had to be that Jesus was perfect without sin or He could not be our Savior. Now, there are going to be all kinds of people that will uh, know, make claims of, of the fact that they are the Messiah and we read about them all the time. Usually, there are people who want to get in your back pocket and get your money, you know, build them a big house somewhere. But as soon as a person can live a life free from sin, is willing to die, and will raise himself from the dead, I'm going to be ready to believe he is the Messiah. It is going to be absolutely essential that the sacrifice God has for sin is a perfect sacrifice, one in whom there is no sin. And Peter calls Jesus a lamb without spot or without blemish. Now let me, let me look at this with you just a second and let you see the progression of this. Look in verse 3. He says, 
take a lamb. He says in verse 4, divide the lamb. In verse 5, tell me what, you talk to me, it's what? Y'all got a Bible? Your lamb. It is a lamb, it is the lamb, it is your lamb. You know what that means? It means that this Savior, this sacrificial Savior is yours personally. Now, there are a lot of folks who want to join the church and there are a lot of people who want to uh, be called a Christian and there are a lot of people who are willing to live by the rules and follow the regulations and the rules. But the Christian life is this simply, that a person has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. And I have experienced Him personally. And if I, if, if I were the only person in the world that had sinned against God, He would have come to die just for me. He's my personal Savior. It is, a, it is a fact that a person can have a personal relationship with Him. In fact, there is no relationship with God that's not a personal one. He's my Savior. Number six, verse 6 is number 4. Verse 6 it says, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Now even though the Savior is our Savior personally, He died for all of us. He died for all of us. The whole congregation. When I pick up the... Uh, Newspaper in the morning, I'll probably see some pictures of people suffering in the third world countries. Um, I'm hearing uh, something that's exciting and wonderful, and you're hearing about it, that, that uh, the Eastern Bloc countries are opening up to the gospel, and many of our people are going there. Mark and the singing churchmen are going into Russia next spring with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've been praying about where I can fit in, plug into that, as well as some of you. Andy's got a friend who goes over, and there he's, she's teaching these people how to teach the gospel in schools. And what, what is happening is that we're being made a, a conscious of the fact that everybody in this whole world is the object of the love of God and that person over in the jungles of Africa and those Asians and those Muslims who have never come to know Jesus Christ, He belongs to them as well. He's not a God, a white man's God who was born on a comfortable pew in a Southern Baptist church in the Bible Belt. He's the God of all men. And there ought to be on the heart of every one of us this mission desire, this mission longing to see everybody come to know Him because He's the Savior of all men. What a tragedy that people live in this world and never know that. Notice a, a, a fifth thing. We'll hurry to be through in verse 8. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it 
with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now you know what the flesh he's talking about is this sacrificial lamb that's been sacrificed. They're going to take the blood and put it over the doorpost. We'll see that in just a second. They're to take that lamb that's been sacrificed without a spot or blemish and they're to eat it. They're to feast on it. Eating that flesh, eating that lamb involves, it, it suggests two things. Two things are involved in that, appropriation and fellowship. So they took this lamb that had been slain, and after it had been slain, and after it had gone through the fire, said, feed on it, eat it, appropriate it, fellowship with it. And you're to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The unleavened bread in the Bible is a reference to evil. You know, unleavened bread, leaven in the, in the Scripture is a reference to evil, so they ate unleavened bread, bread that was, that was symbolical of, of the absence of evil, so that when one appropriates and fellowships with the Lord, he must do that with, a, with, with, a, with sin out of his life. And he fellowships with God. He appropriates Jesus and he feeds on Him. He feeds upon that which death had done its work and upon that which had been subjected to the fire. Feeding on Christ. Remembering the bitter experiences without Him, we feed on Him. And we, we fellowship with Him when we have sin out of our life. You can't have fellowship with God when there's sin in your life. There's a six, and that's found in verse 10. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you burn with the fire, because the sacrifice of the Savior is a completed sacrifice. There's nothing left over. Now what is the provision? I want to give you this and then we're out of here. Verses 12 and 13 is the provision. It says this, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when, you, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, if you've even been to Sunday school at all, you know the story, how that worked. They took the blood of this lamb and they put it over the top of the door and they put it on the doorpost on each side. They sprinkled the blood there. And God said that when the death angel comes through the land, I will pass over that house where I see the blood. Remember the singing that song, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, an old song we used to sing way back. It's interesting that that word there, pass, in the Hebrew is the word pesach, P-E-S-A-C-H, pesach. And the word does not just mean pass over, it means to cover, to cover. And what he seems to be saying is, not just that he will pass over, but that he will cover those houses with his wings and protection so that death cannot invade. And what he's saying in essence is this, that he not only saves us, but he secures us and protects us. 
Now, there are many reasons, I believe, in the security of the believer, that you're, once you're saved, you're always saved. And I know that's a real, there's a great debate that goes on with regard to that. But I believe that throughout the Bible, there are illustrations after illustrations of the fact that He not only saves us when we exercise our faith in Him, but that He assures us that He will keep us and protect us. He puts His wings over us. And Jesus says it like this. He said that He has us in His hands and He's in the Father's hands and no one's able to pluck us out. And so the conclusion is verse 11. Now you will eat in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. You will eat in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. You live in a state of preparation and readiness. The object of the Exodus is to live in a state of readiness for His return. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the wonderful illustration that You have for, for us in Your Word. God, help us to find the truth that is in these great passages of Scripture by which to live. And then grant us the courage and the will to live by them. For I pray in Jesus' name.